Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shit podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite Podcast. This podcast is about the real-life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. So today is a show where we have somebody here who is going to share their personal journey with their eating disorder. And as many of you know who have listened before, I absolutely value and appreciate when someone is willing to come on and share their journey. I think it is so powerful when someone comes on and someone out there listening can relate to what someone else is saying or may hear what someone else says and maybe they get that final push to go into recovery themselves, or maybe they hear something that's just what they need to hear for them to realize that they have an eating disorder when maybe they never really thought they did, or maybe they wondered if they did. And, you know, hearing someone else's journey and some of the things that they describe about their life and what they've been thinking and feeling or what they went through gives them that that final thing they need to hear to realize, okay, I need help. Um, you know, people have all sorts of reactions to hearing other people's stories. If nothing else, maybe you just don't feel so alone in what you're experiencing out there. For for any of you out there who are struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder, um, and even for those who don't have an eating disorder, maybe you're a loved one uh, of someone who you see struggling. Hearing someone else's story, maybe it can give you some insight or help you more further understand um, more about what your loved one's going through and also kind of give you, I guess, maybe a sense of uh, relief and knowing that there's really nothing that's personal to you about why your loved one is not responding to your pleas for them to get help or, you know, it's really not about how much they love you or not whether or not they seek treatment or get better. So um, you'll hear so much about what this next guest is about to say that um, I think will help many of you listening. And if you have questions after uh, you hear this, please, again, reach out to me, reach out to our guest. She's willing to um, you know, communicate with you. She's going to leave her contact information, which I think is wonderful. So um, that being said, probably wondering who this guest is, um, Caroline Drummond Smith is our guest today, and uh, she is a 56 year old mother of three who suffered with anorexia for over 30 years. And she thought recovery was impossible for someone who had lived with an eating disorder for so long. And that's a lot of people. They think, oh gosh, if I've had this for so long, I'm never going to reach recovery. But now she's fully recovered and she's using her lived experience along with specialist eating disorder training to help others to live and thrive. I'm really excited to have her on and for you to hear her story. Caroline, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. It's great to be on your podcast. Thank you. Well, and I always love having people who 
are willing to share their stories because of I, as I've shared with uh, listeners on previous shows, I think that that is so powerful to listen to somebody else's story so they can relate. Because I oftentimes think people don't realize that they actually have an eating disorder. Uh, and it's in listening to someone else sharing what they're going through that they kind of get a light bulb moment and go, wait a minute, maybe this isn't just me failing a dieting, or maybe this is something I can overcome, or maybe I don't have to live my life this way. And so I really appreciate your willingness to come on and, and speak about, you know, your life, your journey and where you're at now. So thank you yeah. so much. So given that, um, I know you, you know, you're in a different space now in your life, but um, how, what do you want to share with us in terms of like where, I guess, how did you realize you had an eating disorder or maybe a struggle with food? I think it all started when I was about 15. Hmm. I, I think for a long time, I thought it started when I was 16 because there was a particular event. I was sent to boarding school in a different country and that was my story for a long time. That's when my eating disorder started. But actually, the more I've looked into it, the more I realize it started about a year before that. Oh. And, you know, it took me a while to, to sort of readjust my story because, you know, you're living with a story and then you think, actually, no, that's not true. So that made me think, well, maybe the reason for my eating disorder was different to what I originally thought. But I think, you know, there are so many reasons. There's not just one reason, but so 15, 16, I started using food restricting as a way of one controlling my situation and secondly coping with my situation I think the coping part was because I was an introvert I was I wasn't I mean I had friends but a very small group of friends I always felt slightly separate and just not quite part of the group and so I think I found that that safety in in restricting my food because I thought okay this this I can do this this is okay things felt okay when I did that and then at 16 I was sent to boarding school in England I'd been living abroad and I'd never lived in England well since the age of four I hadn't been in England so it was a big change and that was definitely about control I remember thinking I really do feel out of control in this situation everything was new and unknown and it was a conscious decision that I can control my food. And I think I'd started already, so it just got more severe. And so it was really, it was control and coping. It was those two things that that restriction gave me. That's so interesting that you, you say you knew that that's what you were doing. Because mm. I oftentimes hear, oh, I didn't know that that's what that was about until much later. Yeah. Um, and so to even have that awareness so young. I think, yeah, the co the control, I definitely had the awareness, mm -hmm. the coping, the coping before I didn't. It's only now looking back, I can see what I was doing and, and see what was happening. But yes, the control. And then, of course, that that carried on. So there were times, you know, through my late teenage years, early 20s, where, where things were okay and I didn't need it so much, but it was always there as a crutch. I, I knew it was in my back pocket to bring out when I needed it. And so, so there were times when it was much worse than others. So was anyone aware of what you were doing or was this something that you kept to yourself? 
Do you know, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think, I think when we're in an eating disorder, we think nobody knows. Mm-hmm. We think we're being really clever. And of course, an eating disorder is so secretive. Mm-hmm. And because I was at boarding school and then I never really, you know, I used to go home in the holidays. So but I can't, it's funny, isn't it? You can't really remember, but bearing in mind that, that I wasn't at home 24 seven every day of the year. And also this was 40 years ago. Eating disorders were not really talked about or recognized then. So although I do remember arguments, particularly with my father about it. So yes, in answer to your question, yes, people clearly did notice, but I don't think they knew how to approach me about it. I didn't get any help or support Mm -hmm. because there wasn't the help or support then. You know, it just wasn't there. You, I mean, I think if you were severely ill, you went into hospital, but but there wasn't all the the um, the awareness that there is now. Oh, absolutely right. And, and I think probably my friends. Actually, I was talking to my best friend the other day, who I've been best friends with since the age of ten, and we were at school together in Paris. And I said, "Oh yeah, teachers used to come up to me and say, you know, what's wrong with Caroline?" Oh. And I I never knew that. I only found that about six months ago. I found that out. So yes, I was there blissfully thinking, oh, nobody knows what's going on. But, and this is the trouble, isn't it? People won't approach the person with the eating disorder because they're scared of what to say. They're scared to say the wrong thing. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I'm wondering, I know that's hard for you to probably answer this, but do you think if your friend had said something to you back then, um, do you think that anything would be different? It's so hard, isn't it? I think, I think it could have been that whether it whether she had said something, if my parents had said more, if there'd been a support network. I mean, they'd really got on it straight away because you know we all know the research says if you catch it early, recovery is more successful and more likely. Mm-hmm. So whether that would have helped. But looking at my personality, I think even if I hadn't gone to boarding school, I think it would have happened. There'd have been something else that triggered it. So it's so interesting, too, because I'm wondering, did, was there any influence you had in your life that you like looking back, you think, well, this is why I turned to food to cope and to control? Was there anybody in your life that was also doing that like how do you make sense of why you you had the eating disorder versus maybe coping with something else yeah I I believe that there's a genetic element to it mm-hmm. and if I look back in my family I can see a, a genetic you know I can see a pattern obviously it was it manifested in different ways because it was back several generations but I think that, I've forgotten your question now. <laughs> Just looking at looking back. And- oh, was there anybody who I, I knew and sort of copying or, no. And isn't that the extraordinary thing about eating disorders? We don't need, it just, they have so many common elements. And that's why I think when I finally talked to somebody else about it years down the line, because I'd never talked to anybody about it, and they said, I feel like that. I thought, whoa, I'm not on my own here. Mm-hmm. I went 
25, 30 years without ever talking to anybody about it, as in somebody else who'd suffered with it. Wow. And so, you know, that's really lonely. And it made, yes, it made me think, maybe I don't have such a problem. You know, like you said at the beginning, people might think, oh, I don't have such an issue. I had a big problem. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not, like me, no, it's not just about weight, because there were times when my weight was just about okay, where people would say, oh, you're so lucky, you're so slim, but they weren't, they didn't look at me and say, oh my goodness, she's underweight. You know, it's the behaviours and the thought patterns. That was what was engulfing me and dominating my life so much but no I didn't have anybody it wasn't like a rule but a manual you know I didn't read a manual on how to be anorexic didn't copy somebody else it's extraordinary isn't it how how we just seem to pick these well it's an illness isn't it um and it has these common traits and I I, thank you for saying that because I think there is that myth out there still that if someone has an eating disorder you can look at them and know and especially anorexia nervosa everyone thinks oh if I can tell if somebody has that illness, right? You can look at somebody and know, and much to your point, that's not it. And even once somebody maybe does seek treatment and they are, let's say, not even engaging in the behaviors anymore, you know, it's the thoughts, it's Mm. this other part that's going on internally for people, right? And so for you, when you were saying that, you know, for anyone listening, going, what do you mean? What are, what are these other things that nobody sees? What's going, what was going on for you that nobody saw? What were you struggling and suffering with? I suppose it's the continue on a practical level, it's practical level is that continual negotiating in your head. Can I eat that today? If I eat that, do I need to go on a run? You know, that was my, my drug of choice, um, my eating disorder. If I'm eating out tonight, what can I eat during the day or what can I not eat during the day? Cause we're eating out this evening in a restaurant. And then what do I have to do tomorrow? It's all those thoughts and it's a continual chatter. It's exhausting. It really is. And pe- that's what people don't see on the outside. You can, you know, you can seem so together and with it. Very true. Right. You did a lot of <laughs> pretending. and Yeah. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. And I think, you know, when you've, you know, as we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, with a family, you have to really, you know, unless you're very sick. You, as a mother, it's our role to keep going. You know, you're not allowed to be ill because you have to keep going. It's just what you do. Well, no, so now that's interesting. So you were talking about boarding school and, you know, late teens, early 20s. So it sounds like you're eating disorder and behaviors and all of this, like, you know, you you engaged in all this and had your eating disorder throughout, you know, from 15 on. Yeah. So, yeah, what happened? Because obviously you're, you're talking about motherhood and things like yeah, that. Yeah, so. Yeah, what, what happened here? Because a lot of people are scared, you know, oh, I won't be able to have kids. This eating disorder yeah. is going to, like, hurt my body. Or, oh, you know, if I, what happens? Does the eating disorder need to be gone before you have children like let's talk about all this because you went through all of these things that people probably have questions about and are worried about so for a start I think I was told when I had an eating disorder as a teenager I was told by somebody probably my father if you keep going like this you won't be able to get pregnant and my big thing you know when you're asked as a child what do you want to be when you're older 
apparently I always said, I want to be a mummy. So that was my thing. I did, you know, I knew I wanted to have children, but being told I might not be able to, that wasn't enough. That was not enough. This is, this is how powerful an eating disorder is. You know, my biggest desire in life, I was being told I might not reach it, might not achieve it, but the eating disorder was stronger. But I got married young at 23. Um, and my husband was a workaholic. And he wouldn't mind me talking about this openly. Our marriage, actually, it, it started, it's changed so much over the years. And thank goodness, you know, we've grown closer, not further apart, because I think things like this can either, you know, separate you or bring you closer. And we got married. He was a workaholic. I was an anorexic. It was perfect. And the extraordinary thing is, looking back, we didn't even talk about my anorexia. It was never talked about. You know, this guy I was marrying, it was never acknowledged between us, which now you think, whoa, that's crazy. But it suited us. So he went off to work at some crazy hour in the morning, didn't get back till after supper in the evening. Well, how perfect was that for me? That, you know, I could starve myself all day without him knowing, without him confronting or noticing. So that went on for a while. And then tried to get pregnant. And funny enough, I couldn't. But the gynecologist I went to, he put me on fertility drugs. So I suppose somehow I thought, well, this is fine because I can still carry on being anorexic. And I've got this medicine that's going to help me get pregnant. So, yes, on the one hand, that was great. Isn't modern medicine amazing? But it didn't help me get better. But it, I think what it does is give hope to people that, you know, yes, I was I wasn't emaciated, but you know, my body was not functioning properly. I wasn't ovulating. So ideally, of course, I would have wanted to do it without getting uh, being on treatment. But I was really fortunate. I managed to fall pregnant, had my son, and then 20 months later, had twins. Um, so yeah, that was pretty full on, <laughs> three under 20 months. But you know, there was that, people said to me, well, how was it being pregnant? when you had an eating disorder. And I know everybody is different. For me, I was okay with my changing body to a certain degree. And the bump was fine. Anything else wasn't. And I was put in hospital uh, five weeks before my eldest was born and 10 weeks before the twins were born because they weren't growing properly, not surprisingly. And do you know, for me, although I hated every minute of being in hospital, the eating disorder loved it because the food was disgusting. So I didn't eat it. And is it an amazing, the human body? I had three healthy children. And because they take everything from you. So I was just completely depleted by the end. But the children, the babies were fine. So it was a very mixed feeling. I, I mean, I didn't enjoy being pregnant because I felt very sick right the way through. But actually the growing bump, I remember being really proud of my bump and loving it and wanting to show, you know, to look pregnant, but only at the front. Anything else? Absolutely not. And then afterwards, I mean, I, I think because I'd basically not eaten properly in hospital, so... 
it was just I naturally just you know did what is so awful in the media oh get back to your pre-body shape which I hate um because that's not normal and that's not what the human body should be doing we've just grown a baby or I've grown two babies right um so but I my anorexia loved that that it was pinging back and back in jeans and you know which is so sad I look back and I think that's so sad so sad so I'm curious like during your pregnancy so you were you were full-on engaged in your eating disorder throughout both pregnancies sounds like and were you aware of this were the any doctors aware of this was anyone no. aware was this because you said too in that you know this is the nature of the illness right it's so secret like how were you able to hide this this sounds so like I suppose because yeah I mean it's looking back I remember when I because I had cesareans and I remember having my epidural it was either just before or just after and they then I think I must have had the epidural and then they put me on the operating theater and the gynecologist who did the surgery he helped carry me and he said Oh, I only help lift the light ones. I mean, what a shocking thing to say. And so that endorsed my size. I thought, this is great. You know, this is a really good thing. And then when I went for a checkup, I remember when, I can't remember, is it a six-week checkup or something you go for? So long ago now. And the nurse was there and he said, wow, look at this. You know, look at that shape pinged back. And I just think, no. But at the time... This was fantastic for me. Right. So for anyone listening, like they might not be picking up on like when you have an eating disorder and somebody says things like, oh, I only pick up the light ones. What's going on in someone's mind with an eating disorder is yes. Like I've reached the goal. I'm the light one. And it's like a victorious, like I've made it. I've succeeded. Right. Um, Hearing things like, Oh, look at that shape. It's it, it's validating the eating disorder, mm. like getting all this fuel and like just it's solidifying everything you've been doing and perpetuating this like horrible Totally. like message of yes, keep going. This is it, right? You're doing the right thing. You're getting exactly it's horrible. Yep. Oh, it's horrible. It's shocking. I mean, really shocking. Right. And so, you and know, for anyone who doesn't have an eating disorder, I, I do understand people think it's very nice to compliment people on certain things and they don't mean anything negative by it when they're like, oh, you look great. Or, you know, I hear it all the time on everywhere. It's like, oh, they've lost weight. They look great. But if someone has an eating disorder, all you're saying to them is keep up the eating disorder behavior. You're yeah. doing a great keep job, going. right? Yeah. Keep killing yourself. Right. Yeah. So that was hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was, I mean, it was great, but it was, you know, it yeah, it didn't do me any good, obviously, at all for the eating disorder because it just encouraged it. So when the children were little, I I think again it was my way, you know, I I didn't have any help with the children. And everyone was saying to me, get some help, get if you have it in the States, au pairs. Mm-hmm. Do you have au pairs? Yeah. So just get an au pair to be there or get somebody in at least a couple of days a week to help. And, you know, I think this is part of an eating disorder person's personality. They have to do everything perfectly. Uh-huh. It's yeah. that perfectionist. 
I was, no, I'm going to bring up these three babies under 20 months, breastfeeding two of them, a toddler still in nappies, you know, all on my own and I'll do it perfectly. Well, none of them slept. My husband was at work most of the time. I think, I look back now, I think, well, I couldn't even go to the supermarket. You know, I had the double trolley that you could put the two babies in and then my toddler had to sit in the main bit of the trolley. I could fit about one bunch of bananas in one shop. That was about all I could do at a time, you know, I think at least I should have got somebody to come and look after them for two hours so I could go to the supermarket on my own. But no, I had to do everything perfectly on my own in my eyes. And it was, you know, I was exhausted. And so I was giving, giving, giving all the time. So for me, that eating disorder was my thing. It was my, my secret, I suppose, and my gift to myself that, yes, I was exhausted, Yes, I was just so, you know, run down, but it was okay because I had that little thing of my own. I was giving to everybody else, but I had that little thing of my own that I could retreat into and it just felt good. So, you know, as you're talking, I'm just wondering, my gosh, like, how was this affecting your other relationships too? Like your marriage, relationships with friends, family, it sounds like you were just not really even giving yourself enough to be present and yeah, I mean, energy for anything. Like how did this affect everything in your life? I think at the time I was too tired to even notice what was going on. My husband was exhausted. I think as a couple, I think it's very common, isn't it? Whether you've got an eating disorder or not, when you've got young children, you just get through each day basically. So that the marriage was, yeah, it was tough actually. I think because he was working so hard and I was doing everything with the children. And he's admitted now, he said, you were like a single mother. He said, I didn't do much, did I? I went, mm, no, not really. But, you know, he's a great dad and he, he's got a great relationship with them now. And with the rest of my family, it was difficult. I remember at one point my sister did, didn't force me, but really, really encouraged me to go and get help. Now, I thought, I haven't even got a problem. But I went along to this place to have therapy just to keep her quiet. And of course, it did no good at all because I'd sit there, talk the talk and go away and do my own thing because, you know, I had no intention of changing because I didn't really think I had a problem anyway. Um, but I do remember Christmases, Easter, times when we were together as a family, it was tense. And if I look back, there were times when I'd go to my parents with the children and I remember one occasion pretending I had a migraine so I could avoid eating with them. So I obviously, there were tactics I used. And, you know, you sort of forget, don't you? But then suddenly these memories come up. You think, yeah, I remember that. I, I, I suppose I panicked. I, I, I think what happened, I arrived at my parents' house, put the children to bed, saw what my mother was cooking. I thought, I cannot eat that because obviously I wasn't in control. So I think I obviously conjured up this migraine, um, which I do get anyway. So it wasn't totally impossible but it was a lie at that time um and that's the thing isn't it I am I would hope a very honest person the eating disorder turns you into somebody you're just not you know I would lie to my husband about what I'd eaten you know when it was becoming more obvious that there was a problem I would lie to him I would lie to family I would lie to friends I would make excuses oh I've eaten already all you know all of the things that people listening you've had or have an eating disorder you know what I'm talking about right. but it can be very credible because if you're a sort of person who 
doesn't lie, which I, I absolutely wasn't. But the eating disorder just makes you. It just, it's like it takes over, possess, possesses you. Well, it's scary to think about not having it too. Like you said, it was your little oh. thing, your little secret that was yours and don't want anyone to find out. And then oh, don't you come close to that. And it was my identity, which I think again is a very common thing. You know, who on earth would I be? And, you know, by the end, I'd had this for 35 years. Who would I be without my eating disorder? You know, I I didn't know how to live as an adult because it had started when I was 15. I didn't know how to be without it. I didn't know who I'd be without it. And I think that's a really scary thing. The longer you have it for it, it just becomes so much part of you. And I always liken it to, to a sort of a, a ball around you. And that's your world. And when you have an eating disorder, that's all that's in this ball. That's all there is. So you can't see that there's any space for anything else. So why would you get rid of it? Because there's nothing else in your world. But actually, as soon as you start taking bits of the eating disorder out of this ball, suddenly the space opens up to put other far more interesting things in it. But it's trusting, isn't it, that, that that's going to happen? Right. And, you know, the the one thing I hear the most, and I don't know what your experience was, the, the fear of not being in control, the, the mm-hmm. I guess the perceived notion that you're in control of even your body. Yeah. I mean, you're you're really not. You feel like no. you are, but yeah. the fear of what happens if I don't have this, like, not just who are you going to be, but what are you going to look like? And I know oh, most totally. extremely scared to go to treatment, though, if I, if I don't have this, mm. then my body's going to be out of control. Everything will be out of control, not just that. And I don't know if that was part of that for you as well. It was totally because I'd lived my whole adult life counting calories, monitoring my exercise, and that's how I'd maintained my body. So I thought, well, if I don't have that, what on earth is going to happen to my body? It's going to go completely out of control. Mm-hmm. I need, I thought, I need, how do people just, I used to look at people in restaurants and think, but they just seem to be ordering food that they want and eating it, and they look quite normal. How do they do it? And amazingly, your body is actually a lot cleverer than your head, your head being your eating disorder. Your body knows what to do. And that's what I just could not trust my body to do what it needed to do. Uh, Yes, and I mean, you know, I've shared on here with the show, I also had my eating disorder. I remember thinking that too, like, I have a magical body. Like, mine's not like everyone. Exactly. It's fine for everybody else, but mine won't do that. Mine will go completely haywire and yeah, it it won't know what to do. So was there like a a certain point or like event or what what finally got you to the point where things started to turn around for you? So I, I had a couple of bad relapses. So it was always there right the way through. There were a couple of events. When I was 35, I had a skiing accident. And I was told I couldn't exercise for nine months. I had to have surgery on my knee. And I walked out of the clinic and thought, can't exercise, can't eat. So that was a real dip. And at that point, my husband said, you've got to get help. He said, you need to go into hospital. And my children were sort of 10, 11. And I said, well, I'm not. I said, if you put me in hospital or if they put me in hospital, I am escaping. Literally, I would have climbed out of the window. I know I, I wouldn't have done it. I said, I'm not going into hospital. And 
I found, he said, okay, I'll give you a week to find an alternative. I mean, he was, he really stood up to me there. And luckily near where we lived in England, there was this woman who just set up this sort of center for about four or five people, very small. And I remember going to her because I'd heard about her and I remember knocking at the door and I felt so embarrassed because I thought she's going to think I'm a complete fraud. Now, looking back, I was so ill. I mean, I had had a major relapse. You didn't have to be a doctor or anybody to just look at me and think she's got she's got real problems. Anyway, so I said to this woman, oh, you might not know why I'm here. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's laughable, really. Anyway, she agreed to take me. I said, I'm not staying the night because it was residential. I said, the deal is I'll come in in the morning. I'll go in the evening so I can see my children. And, you know, I did that for 18 months and it really helped. And I came out thinking I was recovered. And then another four years passed. We moved to Madrid. And I realized I, I still told people I was recovered. In my body, I looked recovered, but the behaviors and the thoughts were still there. I still hadn't got rid of them. And it was really annoying me, but I thought, well, this is just the way I'm going to live. I, I think I got to the point I accepted. I've had this for too long to ever recover. Then we moved back to England and I had another major relapse. And it was at that point, it was one morning I got up and I was drying my hair and you know when you cross your legs, you're sitting in a chair, cross your legs. And I remember looking down at my legs and it was like I was seeing them as they really were for the first time. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's not a good look. And I looked in the mirror and it was like I said to myself, I'm done with this. And from that moment, I decided I wanted to recover and that was the first time in my life I had decided for myself. It wasn't anybody else who told me to. And I did it on my own. And this is why I do the work I'm doing now, because I had no support. And I wish I had, because it took a lot longer doing it on my own. But I did it. And it didn't mean it was easy, because I decided to recover. But because I had the right intention, I had the motivation or I'd made the decision, you know, I didn't wake up every morning feeling motivated, but I woke up every morning deciding I was going to take the right steps towards recovery that day, however hard it was going to be. And it was that moment, it was just that moment. And it's so hard, isn't it? Because people say, well, how can I want to recover? And it has to come from in you. It has to come from within you. You can have all the people around you in the world. I mean, when I was in England, in that last relapse, my daughter, who was 16 at the time, she said to a friend of mine, I'm really scared mummy's going to die. This friend told me this. Now, bearing in mind, my children are my world. I didn't work when they were growing up. I wanted to be at home. That was my choice. I was very fortunate I could do that. So, you know, that was how much they meant to me. Not the people who work, don't, you know what I mean, though. But it was it was my world. They were my world. My friend said, your daughter is really scared you're going to die. It was like, went right over my head. That's how powerful and strong, like I said before, the eating disorder is. Yes, of course. I'm, oh, But then it just put that to one side because the eating disorder is far more important, far more important to stay thin, not eating, in control. But it was at that point that I decided to get better that things really happened. And I really want people to hear that part because I, I get a lot of questions on my messages from people, loved ones, 
um, asking, well, what can I say to my wife, my friend, my whatever sister to get mm. them into treatment? What do I need to do? Um, mm. They're not listening to me. They're not listening to anyone else. And so just to your point, anyone out there who's ever asked me that question, <laughs> hear what she's saying. There's nothing you can do or say. There's no magical words. Nice. It's not about them not loving you enough. It's, it's nothing mm-hmm. to do with you. It's the, the, the illness is so powerful. Yeah. And I hear so often loved ones saying, don't they love me? Don't, if they loved me, they'd get better. It's not, it, that's not, like you said, that's not how it works. It's really not. And, you know, I've had to, luckily my relationship with my children is so close that I've talked to them about it. And, especially to my daughter, because I affected her eating. My behaviors affected her and I feel immense guilt. I did, I've, I've sort of forgiven myself for that because I know it wasn't my fault. I mean, yes, it was, it was my doing, but I didn't choose to do it. It was the illness, but we've talked a lot about it and she's absolutely fine now, but she went through those, you know, through those teenage years, she struggled. Luckily, you know, we're nearly as bad as I did and she came out of it. But all three of them, the two boys and my daughter, I've talked to about it and I've apologized. And I, you know, there was a phase, a, ch- a, a time when I controlled their food too much, when they were just coming into their teenage years. My husband said to me, he was pretty harsh, but it was quite right. He said, if you carry on like this, you're going to lose your relationship with your children. And he was right. I had to back off because I was trying to control their food. Well, they were t- coming into teenage years. They could decide. Yes, of course, I provided healthy food for them at home. But, you know, they had a choice in what they ate far more at that age and I had to let them do that and that was really difficult for me really really difficult not to micromanage their food as well as mine and I think that was a real indicator of how badly I was in or out of my eating disorder you could see it by how much I was controlling their food I think if you look back it probably would have been quite a good indicator of how badly I was doing and when I was doing better, I'd ease off and I was much more relaxed. So, you know, interesting as you look back and think like the times you were doing better versus more in the illness, have you been able to identify for yourself like why there were times you maybe weren't so in your eating disorders other times? I think, I think maybe when there was more in my life, when I felt more fulfilled in other things. But it's a it's a catch-22, isn't it? Because you need to let go of the eating disorder a bit to allow other things into your life. So I think when we moved to Madrid, it, it was a bit better because although the thoughts and behaviors were there, I was eating better because it was exciting. It was a new start. It was, it was all very, you know, it was all new and, and fun. Um, but then when, when we came back and I had my relapse, that was probably because the children were all a lot more independent. And that was when I felt, well, what's my purpose now? I've been a mother all these years. Now what? So that, I think, was a time when I, I thought, okay, I, I know what I need. I need to really get a hold of this again. And, and this will make me feel I've got a purpose and something to get up for every day. So, yeah, because even as I'm thinking about, like, you doing this on your own when you had that moment, 
how did you even know what to do? Do you think part of it was because you had had 18 months of treatment that you yeah. knew kind of what you needed to do? Because I'm just thinking if anyone's listening going, oh, wait, I can just have that moment and do this on my own. Like yeah. you also did have 18 months of really intense. I did. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that helped a lot. I knew I knew what I needed to do. Now, when I'd had the treatment, I went off and didn't do it. I did some of it, but I did. Whereas when I decided to get better, yes, I sort of drew on on what I'd been through and what we'd worked on. And to a certain extent, I thought, do you know what? I've just got to eat more. And that doesn't solve everything because it's not just about food. But I think once you're nutritionally nourished, you know, you can actually think more rationally. And then I was in a space to think, okay, what do I want to do with my life? And then you can start working on all the other stuff. And, you know, it took several years. I've I've been to therapy for, for other things to help me, you know, cope with general life. Because obviously the way I've done it for so long was through an eating disorder. So I've actually needed help to learn how to cope with things not using that eating disorder. So yeah, it's you've got to get get rid of some of the eating disorder to allow that space to put something else in. And yes, it, to your point too, like I hear this, anyone listening, like there is, I think, a lot of confusion about, okay, once I start eating more, right, the eating disorder is gone. But to your point, when you are starving yourself, literally, your brain does atrophy. There's yeah. MRIs, people's brains atrophy. You are not capable of thinking clearly. There's no, no. rational. You're just not. And no. so once you start eating and nourishing your body again, you're, you're able to think clearly. You're able to focus. You're able to, like really do some work and, and yeah. get really involved in therapy. It's, you know, I've worked with patients. It's really hard to do any intense work or really do the treatment mm. of the eating disorder until somebody's body and brain are nourished. And so and that's, yeah, yeah exactly. That's what I find. Yeah. yeah. It's the eating disorder is not gone just because somebody's eating and their body's well-nourished again. That's just the surface. I hate to say yeah. that. It's a big step. It's huge. Don't get me wrong. But it's the first step. Exactly. So, yeah. you know. And I think people find it difficult because they, you know, they come to me and they say, well, you know, I've been into hospital and, and they fed, fed me, put weight on. I came out and I lost it again. So looks like we're doing just the same thing. I say, no, the difference is this is just the first step. But we cannot do anything. Like you said, you cannot do anything when they're so starved. You can't. You can't have a conversation with them. You know, some of my clients I have to do, I split into two sessions because I think they can't focus for that long. Right. And until they can, you can't really do any proper work with them. You're just giving them the courage and the, the support to start nourishing themselves. And that's really important. You know, it's so important to be there for them. It's scary. Oh, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. So, you know, you went through this long process and it sounds like, you know, um, obviously took longer than maybe it could have if you had had some support and help yeah. along the way. So, yeah. you know, now you're at 
a different place in your life. I mean, it sounds like having gone through that, it, you learned a lot. And um, now you're, now, like, if you want to talk a little bit more about what you're actually doing now and how this is all kind of got you to your life now. Yeah. So I'm now an eating disorder coach. And, you know, I just love what I do because I'm the person who I wish I'd had. I mean, not necessarily exactly me, but, you know, somebody who I could talk to. And I work with people who a lot of the people who come to me, they have tried a lot of different. They've been to hospital. They've had general counselors who can be very good. They say, oh, they were lovely, but they never addressed the food. Well, that suits them to the ground because they go to their sessions. They talk about everything else apart from the food. And then they go home and do exactly the same behaviors. So I work with people who, you know, most of the people I come to who come to me have tried other things. And I think my my strength maybe is that I've been through it myself. Now, the disadvantage of that, I, and I always say this to my clients, I say the advantage is I've been through it. The disadvantage for them is that I've been through it and I know when they're bullshitting me, if excuse the language, but, you know, I know when they're trying to get around things or through things or over things, under things, whatever, because I've done it myself. I've had, I had 35 years of practice. I, I got pretty good at it. So I know most of the tricks in the book, but they do seem to get so much comfort from the fact that I get it. And it doesn't mean I'm easy on them. You know, I I challenge them. I really challenge them. But I, my job is to empower them to do it for themselves. You know, anybody can be force-fed. You know, that's, that's easy. And lots of people go into hospital and say, well, I'll just do what they tell me to do so I can get out and do my own thing. Now, the way I work is a lot slower, which is hard for the carers because they think, well, this is taking a long time. But I often talk to parents you know, if it's appropriate and say, this will take a long time, but every step they take is because they've decided to do it. I'm not sitting there forcing them to do it. I've challenged them. I've encouraged them. I've suggested to them. We've come up with challenges together. And, you know, sometimes they'll say, I can't do that. And, you know, you get to be a good judge of when you get to know the person, are they just saying, is that the eating disorder saying it? Or are you genuinely pushing them too far? And sometimes yeah, I think, okay, that was a bit too much to suggest that. And you pull back a bit. You know, for me, I'm learning all the time and everybody is different. So you have to, you work with each individual. There's no cookie cutter program I have. People say, well, how do you work? And it's very much, it depends on each person. My big thing is I challenge and I empower them. And I never, ever, give up hope. And I say, if you don't believe it, let me believe it for you until you believe it yourself. That is so true that there's no one path for everybody and no, no. like, okay, at week four, you're going to be doing this. And like, exactly. People, oh, I don't know if you get this question, but well, how long is this going to take? Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell you. I cannot tell you. And also, am I doing it right? Mm-hmm. You know, and there is no right or wrong way to recovery everybody's recovery looks different some people lapse some people relapse some people don't at all and there's no no one right way to do it some people go all in some people do it really slowly it's got to be right for that person and feel safe enough but challenging enough and that's the balance isn't it you've got to challenge the eating disorder but make the 
the healthy person feels safe that they can do it and you're holding them while they're doing it. And so do you continually instill that hope, that belief, like recovery, full recoveries, like possible, they can achieve it? Like, what do you say to somebody who says, oh, no, like we're going to fully recover. I'm always going to kind of have this somewhere in the back of my mind or always kind of engage in something. I say, well, one, it's up to you. You can decide to stop at any point. But if you want to fully recover, you can. You absolutely can. You've got to want it. Nobody else can do that for you. But if you want to, yeah, of course you can. So, yeah, I never let them give up hope. You know, I've got a client at the moment who's on her way to relapsing. and But we're going to be fine. You know, I say, it's okay. This is part of recovery. You know, we can learn so much from this and you can come back even stronger. I love that. And I, I, I love that you're out there, like, you know, spreading more of the hope and helping people because I, you know, I often say on here that myth that you can't fully recover, it's it's powerful. And if you believe in it, that has a lot of power over your own yeah. path, right? So of course it does. Yes. Especially where eating disorders are concerned, because they they want to hold on. You know, they don't like being let go of and being dropped. They're going to do everything they can to just keep in there a little bit, just to keep their foot in the door. You should know. So I know I'm in the States and you're not. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, I have listeners from all over. So if somebody does want to work with you, um, how can they find you? How can they you know, get in touch with you? Even if they don't want to work directly with you, how can they find you? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I work, I'm working with a guy in Australia at the moment. I, I work with people in the States. I work, you know, obviously time difference, we have to work it out, but I'm on Instagram at Zest Health Coaching. My website is zesthealthcoaching.co.uk. And I'm always happy. People don't have to want to work with me if they want to get in touch with me. You know, if they just, I get emails saying, you know, I heard your podcast, it really resonated. And they can just, we can have a conversation like that. You know, I just, I just want to help people. They don't have to become a client. If they want to work with me, amazing. And we can do the proper work. People can always book a discovery call on my website just to have an initial, obviously free of charge chat, just to, to find out more about me, how I work, if that's the route they want to take. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And that will all be in the show notes. So um, people can find you and you know, I'm sure people will want to, you uh, are doing amazing work and thank you so much for sharing you. your story. Um, oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been so great talking to you. Thank you. So before we, you know, finally end, is there any last final words for the audience or anyone listening? I think it is, you know, like we've said right the way through this chat, never give up hope. I had it for over 30 years and it was, I had it badly and I am now fully recovered and I am living the best life I could imagine. I just couldn't have imagined doing what I do and living the life I'm living with food freedom and full freedom so just do not let anyone tell you you can't recover great fabulous final words thank you so much caroline i really thank you christina thank you this podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered it is given with the understanding that neither the host 
the publisher or the guest are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.